My name's Al, I'm part of Vine Church, usually at 11 o'clock, so here we are. Now, this thing really hates me always, but I'm going to try. Yes? No? Wait. Go back. It always happens. Go back. Ah, uh, wait. Ah, right. Okay, got it. Okay. Seamless. <laughs> it always happens. It always happens. Now, I don't know if you noticed, this week, Bill Gates is in town. Um, actually, there's a thing in the, uh, on a website this morning saying he visited the Australian Museum yesterday. So, uh, Bill Gates uh, got to spend a time with uh, Mr. Albanese, etc., at Kirribilli, and they you know, talked about uh, the stuff that important people talk about. Bill Gates is the world's richest person uh, from um, uh, 1995 to 2010, and then he had four years again in 2013, 2017. Now I think he's rated about number seven. He's only worth about $100 billion at the moment. Now, if you had that kind of money, what would your priorities be? I know. Woohoo, right? Okay. Um, no, actually, let me rephrase it. What should your priorities be? Hmm, that much money. Well, Bill Gates has got a conscience, and Bill and Melinda Gates started the Gates Foundation, or the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, sadly they've, they've separated now, in 2000. Uh, with some of Warren Buffett's money, I think currently the Gates Foundation has uh, $49 billion, and uh, recently uh, Bill said that he uh, wanted the Gates Foundation to continue for at least another uh, 25 years, which will probably see him out in terms of his lifetime. Uh, he plans to pour another $40 billion into it, but here's his, um, one of his key goals. He says this, the key goal, he said in September last year, to try to bring infectious disease or all the diseases that make the world inequitable, to bring these largely to an end, either through eradication or getting them down to very low levels. And you've got to say, mate, well done, that is a big goal and a very uh, laudable one, to cure disease. And especially if you've ever had someone that you really care for who is really sick, you think, well, what could be more important than that? And sadly, in our world, there are still places that don't have access to modern medicine. No antibiotics, anaesthetics, proper surgery, no pain medication, no x-rays, no MRIs. It's, we live, or you probably live, within 10 minutes drive from three of the best hospitals in the world. It's hard to imagine living in a world like that. But Jesus certainly lived in a world like that. But you know the difference? Jesus could heal. With a, with a touch of the hand or a word spoken, he could miraculously heal. You know, even Jesus' enemies acknowledged that. So, for example, in the Talmud, which is Jewish writings in around the second century, uh, the Talmud says uh, Jesus could heal. It just hit, they kind of linked that ability to being in league with the devil. So, I uh, say so Yeshua of Nazareth was hanged on the uh, day of Passover, sorry, hanged on the day of preparation for the Passover because he practiced sorcery and led the people astray. The Gospels tell us that. Jesus had compassion for people and he could heal. Now, um, uh, what are we doing now? We're looking at Jesus' life in 4K. I'm not exactly sure what 4K means, but I know it's good. 
um, and it's about Jesus. So what we're doing is looking at the Gospels, okay, Matthew, and uh, this story is, is also in Mark's Gospel. It's interesting just to notice, you can look in Mark chapter 2, there's, a, there's a kind of a difference. Mark's written, we know from history, through the eyes of Peter, right, Jesus' follower. And Mark's got lots of colour and movement and kind of extra detail, what Matthew does is Matthew kind of strips it all back to just this kind of focus on the main things, almost the executive summary. So you get to this incident that Peter just read for us and Matthew strips it all back and five sentences is all that Jesus says. So let's have a look. Um, Matthew chapter 9, verse 1. Jesus stepped into a boat, crossed over and came to his own town. Uh, earlier on in Matthew chapter 4, Matthew said Jesus had been living in Capernaum. Now, where's Capernaum? Um, uh, a city in Jesus' day, and uh, there you can see the map, it's um, on Lake Galilee. And um, look, forgive me, twice in this talk I'm going to say, by the way, I've been there. <laughs> forgive me, okay. Um, uh, that is an aerial shot of Capernaum on Lake Galilee, and yes, I have been there. Um, Actually, actually, I've heard of one church that their criteria for choosing a pastor was we need someone who has never been to the Holy Land. But anyway, that's, you've got me. Okay, so what happens? Jesus comes back to Capernaum and we're told, some men brought to him a paralysed man lying on a mat. Uh, you notice the aerial shot? You see that big circular thing like, like a flying saucer? What that actually is, is like an observation deck that's been built over the, the kind of the ruins of the house that they think, claim, etc., where Jesus healed this man. Um, when you do go to the Holy Land, you notice Jesus did most of his miracles near souvenir shops. So you don't know exactly, but this happened at Capernaum, real place, real time. Now Mark gives us some extra detail and says that four men bought this poor guy, this paralytic, uh, they couldn't get to Jesus, so they actually went up on the roof of the house, with, they built flat roofs, ripped up the roof and lowered it down. Now, I have a little theory. Why does Mark mention that? There's a good chance that this was Peter's house. It's written through Peter's eyes, and he remembers, they ripped up my roof. Okay? Anyway, so they finally get this man in front of Jesus, and what does Jesus say? Some men brought to him a paralysed man lying on a mat, Matthew tells us, when Jesus saw their faith, he said to them, take heart, son, you're healed. It's not what he says. It's not what he says. Huh? Now, later on, he does heal the man immediately, fully, completely. And, and when it comes to healing, we could say, wow, that's so impressive. In fact, the NIV Bible, New International Version Bible, in 1984, when they put it out, their heading was, Jesus heals a paralytic. Thanks for playing. You've totally misunderstood the story. Okay? That's why you be careful of the headings. They're not in the original text. Now, in 2011, when they republished it, they fixed it. Okay? But let's have a look. What did Jesus actually say? So men brought to him a paralytic, uh, sorry, a paralyzed man lying on a mat. When Jesus saw their faith, he said, Take heart, son, your sins are forgiven. Why does he say that? He's very deliberate, and the gospel writers are very deliberate as well. So let's just take a few minutes and look. Why does he say that? Okay. Um, You've got this guy, bed sores, can't walk, etc. I'll come back to that in a moment, but why does he talk about sin? Now today, sin seems like, well, it's a, 
kind of archaic word that we've, we've basically trivialised. So sins become, you know, um, eating the wrong stuff that's full of sugar, okay, sinful cakes or whatever. Or sin is 10 minutes in the sin bin. Now, by the way, if you're a Sydney Roosters fan, Victor Radley gets sent to the sin, he's my favourite footballer, gets sent to the sin bin all the time and it's never fair. But anyway, that's another story. Or, you know, sin is just associated with, um, with sex, etc. Or sin gets joked about. I don't know if you remember, you know, that famous Instagram post where 2018 Israel Folau puts out a list of eight sins. Well, there are media people joking and competing about how many of the eight they've actually committed. So is it really that much of a big deal? Recently, um, Kitty Flanagan, who's a comedian, she's got a TV show uh, on the ABC, she's put out, um, in response to Jordan Peterson's 12 Rules for Life, she's put out 488 Rules for Life. And uh, me being on the other side of midlife, I kind of like them. She's got uh, rules about um, around the home, health and lifestyle, at the office, etc. Um, you know, like... Rule 67, no stinky foods at the office, and she lists all the curries that you're not allowed to leave in the fridge at the office. Um, or public transport, in flying, no reclining your seat on short flights. It's not a bad idea. No bare feet on planes. Um, the person in the middle of the three seats gets both armrests. <laughs> Those walking travelator things, when you get on one, you've got to keep walking. Now, I look for, not bad, not bad. But if you break them, what is it? Well, it's kind of mildly annoying and, you know, she's not bossy, she just knows what you should be doing. So, is sin a little bit like that? The answer is no. Now, when you get home today, someone might say to you, did you go to church? Yep, what happened? The preacher spoke on sin. What did he say? He was against it. Okay. Um, thank you. Uh, let's see if we can drill down a little bit deeper than that. Now, I understand some of you may not like what I'm saying. I'm happy to sort out what's a middle-aged rant by an old bloke versus what the Bible says. But let's try and look at what the Bible says and the implications of why does it matter? Why does it actually matter to us? And even more importantly, why does it matter to Jesus so much? Because in this story, he looks at this guy who's paralysed on a mat or a stretcher there's no NDIS, there's no Centrelink, there's no wheelchairs, there's no pain meds, he's probably got bed sores, he's either a beggar or a massive burden on his family. And Jesus says, the sin thing is more important and more urgent than the healing. Now, let's have a look. First thing, a sin and, sin, uh, sin and sickness linked. It's complicated. At a at a kind of a widest possible generic level, yes, because the Bible, and you'll see in the second half of Genesis 3, the Bible says sin has kind of messed up the whole fabric of creation. That's why there's sickness and death, etc. But you cannot draw a direct line from someone being particularly sick to that person having done something particularly bad or deserving it. You just can't do that. Happy to talk later on. It's John chapter 9. Jesus says explicitly you can't draw that kind of line. Now, the word sin in the New Testament, hamartia, actually means to miss the mark or, or to fall short of something. And to put it simply, in the Bible, sin is an offence to God, our Creator. 
Sin is an offence to God, our Creator. Let me give you just two particular reasons why, or two, two explanations of why that's the case. First one is, it's actually a personal affront to God, who is personal. Now, at one level you can say, well, look, sin is kind of breaking God's laws. Yep, okay, you've got a summary in the Ten Commandments. Do we break the Ten Commandments? We can't even list them. Come and tell me later, if you can list the Ten Commandments in order, I will be amazed. By the way, they're on the wall behind us every week. <laughs> anyway, yeah, we don't even... But there's a... Yes, well, we break God's laws, you don't take that seriously. But there's an even deeper personal level. So let me, get, let me take you to Genesis. And Genesis, Genesis, particularly Genesis, say, 1 to 3, is setting... It focuses on, it's not meant to be a scientific document or whatever, it's focusing on relationships. It's our relationship with God, our relationship with one another, our relationship with the creation. And this beautiful kind of poetic way is explaining that. And look at what God says to the man as he puts him in the garden and everything's good. God says this in Genesis 2 verse 16. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but... You must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. And what is it? The tree of the knowledge of good and evil, I think, stands for, who is it that makes the rules? Who is it that decides good and evil? Well, it's very simple. There's only one rule. God makes the rules. And what does God say to the man? If you you break that rule and step outside that, you'll separate yourself from the one who gives life, God. And you will certainly die. Now Genesis 3 says that doesn't last very long. Um, Now look, you read Genesis 3 and the snake... Moses knew snakes couldn't talk. Moses spent 40 years in the bush as as a shepherd. Now that's not the main point. It's telling us about our relationship with God and trust and temptation. So let's have a look. Genesis 3... Now, the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees of the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden and you must not touch it or you will die. Not exactly what God had said, but close. Verse 4, um, sorry, um, verses 4 and 5. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. You see what he says to her? And the serpent stands for the evil one, the devil. God's holding something back from you. And you know what? You can make your own rules and decide your own way to live. Um, In fact, if you do that, You can be like God. It can be all about you. And we're told, when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Verse 7, Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realised that they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. And the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. 
and they hid from the Lord among the trees of the garden. And you notice, you see, you've got to think into this. As soon as they decide, actually, I'm going to make my own rules and do my own thing, the first reaction is what? Fear. Because all of a sudden, you're making your own rules, and I need to be afraid of you, and then, actually, I need to be afraid of God now, and what do they do? They hide from each other. It's really effective. Fig leaves. And they hide from God. Let's hide from the sovereign almighty Lord of the universe among the trees. He'll never find us. It's actually kind of meant to look pathetic. But do you see what, do you see what the evil one says? Let me go here. He says, For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. Here's, here's what's at the very heart of sin. That's this, it's believing the lie about God. That is, that God either doesn't know what's best for you, meaning God's, to be really blunt, God's stupid, or God doesn't really want what's best for you, meaning God's mean or unloving. You see, sin, if you believe that about God, that he's either mean or stupid, you'll either actively rebel against him or you'll ignore him. Sin's our response to do we believe the lie about God that he doesn't really know and he doesn't really care. And that's why it's so personally offensive to God. And you know what? Most people in Australia just ignore him. They're just not on the radar. I remember having a conversation with a, with a mate that I care for deeply and we were in a fishing in a tinny and I kind of had a captive audience and I asked his permission to talk to him about God. He said, all right, go for it. So I talked myself out. I reckon I talked 15 minutes. God, Jesus, the cross, the resurrection, the, the, the whole thing. And I got to the end and I said, well, what do you think? He said, uh, about what? I said, well, you know, God, Jesus. He said, mm, nothing. I said, mate, it's God. How can you? He said, let me ask you a question. What do you think about motor racing? I said, oh, nothing. I'm not into it. So I guess that's like me and God. Just, do you see? It's kind of, it's ignoring, why? Because you believe God's either mean or stupid or... But did you notice back in chapter 2, God said the day that you break that relationship, the day that you break the rules, that you decide good and evil for yourself, you will surely die. As you read the story, Adam and Eve, when they do that, they don't lie down and their pulse stops immediately. It's because the way the Bible understands death is this. We think of death as the end, not the way the Bible thinks. The Bible thinks of death as separation. So to die spiritually is to be spiritually separated from God, the source of life. And then that has implications eventually that soul and spirit are separated from the body and you die physically. And then the Bible talks about the second death, which is separation of body and soul from God forever. Now, that's the first, second reason that, about sin, okay? By the way, there's a good news part coming, okay? Promise. The, the second thing about sin is this. It's an offence to God because humanity is made in the image of God and God loves us. Everyone likes to hear, hey, God loves you. Well, that, that's wonderful. Except God loves everybody else as well and when we damage one another and when people are damaged and they're made in the image of God and God cares, God holds us accountable. You know what, we, 
We live with the consequences of sin and we reinforce them in our, in our world. When I say we, I'm including myself as well, okay? I'm a sinner. So you get the point of original sin. Now, original sin's not actually a phrase that's in the Bible. Augustine in the 4th and 5th century came up with that. But here's what the Bible says basically, um, or J.I. Packer, a, a theologian, is a, is a quote here. He says this about original sin. The assertion of original sin makes the point that we are not sinners because we sin, but rather we sin because we are sinners, born with a nature and slave to sin. Folks, we deceive ourselves about how good we are. Um, In the prophecy of Jeremiah in the Old Testament, it says, the heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? We deceive ourselves about how good we are. You really look in the mirror, we can't even live up to our own moral standards. We rationalise our behaviour. Thomas Cranmer, um, English theologian, said this, what the heart loves, the will chooses and the mind justifies. Okay, there's a sentence. So you want to get a tattoo? That's okay. What the heart loves, the will chooses and the mind justifies. It's true, isn't it? Like, let me try and sum it up. The, def- the default position of the human heart is selfishness. It's not that we're as bad as we could possibly be, not at all, but that, that selfishness pervades all of our character and, and who we are. And it matters. It matters in terms of how does the, what does the Bible say about human nature and in terms of understanding our world. Now, let me just... I'm going to kind of step off the reservation for a minute, okay? And I want to give you a quick bird's-eye view of the way I think the Bible would interpret some events in history. Um, if it sounds like I'm just a grumpy old baby boomer... Actually, I probably am. Um, but it, it doesn't mean I'm wrong. Let me just show you, though, that view of human nature, okay, and why we need to understand that, because if you don't understand it, it can lead to disaster. If you view humanity as we're basically good and all we need is a little more education or all we need is to fix economics or we just need to fix the political systems, no, the default position is selfishness and power always makes that worse. It gives more opportunity. How does that look? Well, revolutions, for example, are all about, well, we're going to have a revolution and then we're going to set up utopia and everything will be perfect. So Karl Marx, 1875, said this, from each, and this is in the workers' utopia he would thought we should be set up, from each according to his ability to each according to his needs. In other words, when the workers' utopia arrived, there'd be just free access to goods and capital and services. You just take what you need and everyone would work to their capacity. It works in an ant's nest. It doesn't work with people. And you look, when that's been implemented, the kind of living hell that's resulted and the millions and millions of people who've died as a result. If you want to see what it's like, I waded through the Gulag Archipelago, well, only the abridged version. It's 400 pages. I waded through that on one Christmas holidays. Happy reading. The, the living hell that resulted in Russia and the Soviet Union as a result of that being put into practice. Or go to the, just go to the Wikipedia page and read about Chairman Mao, who lived in luxury while millions of Chinese died in the, um, the Great Leap Forward or the Cultural Revolution. Or, forgive me, but I've been to the killing fields in Cambodia. 
Right? And, and there are literally glass cabinets that would reach to the roof full of skulls. Why? Because Pol Pot chose he was going to bring utopia and an agrarian, an agrarian society that would be utopian. And to do that, he killed maybe a quarter of Cambodians, between 1.5 and 2 million people. Unless you think I'm only putting the boot into the left wing, whatever, here's perhaps the most famous words written in the last, what, millennium about freedom. Thomas Jefferson wrote this, 19, uh, sorry, 1776, he was only 33 years old. He wrote the prologue, or the, um, the preamble to the American Declaration of Independence. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights. Among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Absolutely. And at the time, Thomas Jefferson owned 200 slaves, only seven of whom he ever freed. 400,000 slaves in the American colonies while I wrote this. It's not a cheap shot at America, I'm just saying we all have feet of clay. And even Christianity, you... <laughs> Um, in, uh, in the early 300s, Constantine the Great became the Roman Emperor and apparently was Christian, had a vision of Jesus, etc. And Constantine began to pour Roman, uh, the Emperor's money and resources into the Christian church and corrupted so much of the church overnight. Christian leadership became about money and power and churches became big and expensive. And, and the Bible's view just makes sense of the world. So today, you go and look at a news website. I punish myself by reading The Australian and The Herald because I figure somewhere in the middle there might be reality, okay? Almost every story, almost every story about conflict, crime, social dysfunction, greed, or just virtue signalling symbolism, is about selfishness. My nation, my ethnic group, my tribe, my family, my reputation, me first, and... And you know what? It's so much a part of the world that we, like fish and water, we don't even see it over so much. But you know what? It's the same problem whether it's the dictator who says we're going to invade another country or the people fighting over toilet rolls in supermarkets at the beginning of a pandemic. Okay, that's the rant. We'll just... You go back, why does Jesus take it so seriously? I'll tell you why. Because sin matters. Sin brings sadness, sin isolates us from other people, sin damages other people, sin dishonours God. And Jesus says God will hold us accountable. Now, that's the, if you like, um, uh, the dark side. It's good to see how dark things are, because you see the second half of what Jesus said was, son, your sins are forgiven, are forgiven. We're not in the uh, guilt business, we're in the forgiveness business. Now, why is that so significant? What Jesus is saying is, all the wrong you've ever done, everything that you, all that mess and guilt can be wiped away. Even if I think that man didn't necessarily understand all of that. Now, what happens next? Uh, the teachers of the law, the theologians, uh, say, verse 3, at this some of the teachers of the law said to themselves, this fellow is blaspheming. Um, now, Mark gives us a little extra sentence. They say, this fellow's blaspheming, who can forgive sins but God alone? And they're actually right. Uh, who can forgive sins? It's only God can do that. Now, how does, how does forgiveness work? Well, when, very quickly, 
When someone wrongs you, there's two possible responses. One is you can decide that you will punish them or hurt them back. And there's all sorts of different ways you might do that, from not talking to them to whatever, through to violence, I guess. And that's the usual way we respond. The other alternative is this, is to forgive them. But forgiveness is hard. Why? Because it means that the person who's been wronged has to absorb that wrong or you know, suck it up, if you want to say that way. But it's only the person who's been wronged who can do the forgiving. I'll pick Grant. If, if Grant uh, uh, is wronged and someone damages him, I can't say I forgive you. It's only he can do that. And so if sin is an offence against God, how can that be forgiven? Well, it's God himself who has to say that and God himself who has to absorb the wrong. And if sin means death, well, as Peter um, uh, writes in his letter to the Christians... Peter says that Jesus has come actually to step into our place as our substitute to pay that price. So Peter says um, in 1 Peter, chapter, 1 Peter chapter 2, he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross. The theologians use the phrase substitutionary atonement. Jesus steps in as our substitute and pays the price. And so he can forgive freely. It's great news. Once you understand sin, forgiveness is the great news. Now, um, they can say, see, it's easy to say you can forgive because you can't kind of measure it, etc. Jesus then goes on to say, let me show you that I have God's authority and the way that he heals the man. So verse 4, knowing their thoughts, Jesus said, why do you entertain evil thoughts in your hearts? By the way, this is the beginning of pushback by chapter 12, they'll be planning to kill him. Which is easier, Jesus says, to say your sins are forgiven or to say, get up and walk? Well, only God can do either. He says, but but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralysed man, get up, take your mat and go home. The man got up and went home. When the crowd saw this, they were filled with awe and they praised God who had given such authority to man. Um, The word there for awe, I know that's a word we get awesome from. Awesome's been kind of devalued a little bit lately. It kind of means, yeah, good. Um, What's it saying? They are amazed and awe or phobos in the, the original, it's got an edge of fear. Or is you look at something and your mouth drops open because it's just, why? And there's an edge of fear here. Why? Because they see this man operating with the authority of God. Okay, let me pull a couple of threads together, just quickly. Two things about Jesus' priorities. One, we need to be forgiven. We've got a God who will hold us accountable for how we've treated, particularly for how we've responded to him, how we've responded to other people. I know, I know Christians and, and ministers get accused of, you know, are you, you're making people feel guilty. I think, well, sometimes, but mostly people handle that on their own. They don't need our help. What we are, we're in the forgiveness business and there's full and free and complete forgiveness that you don't even need, you don't even need to feel guilty anymore before God because you're not. Jesus promises that forgiveness. 
what is it? You notice Jesus looks at the man, they've lowered him down through the roof. Jesus looks at the man, he sees their faith. What? They trusted him. And trust or faith is the opposite of sin. If sin is thinking God is mean and, and stupid, faith is thinking God is loving and wise. And so I'll trust him. And Jesus, if you do that, trust him for forgiveness. He'll forgive you. And then to trust means to live his way day by day. We've got to be forgiven. And the second one, the priorities for Jesus' people, we do need to care for people's physical needs. And Christians are the ones who've done that for 2,000 years. Hospitals and, and care for people and food, etc. and welfare organisations and at the level of the local church, absolutely. But even more important is the gospel of forgiveness. Even more important. You hear me, don't you say? Caring for people's physical needs, yep, absolutely, it's important. Yes, even more important is the gospel of forgiveness. In Mark chapter 1, there's a whole village lined up to be healed and Jesus walks away so he can preach what? Preach about forgiveness. Why? He's compassionate, but he sees eternity. And the gospel of forgiveness is about eternity, heaven and hell, and where you'll spend that is... You know... There's, there's pressure that comes with it as well. If you're on to feed and care for people and heal them, etc., you don't get pushback. There'll be no pushback for Bill Gates wanting to end these diseases in the world. And good on him. He shouldn't get pushback. But if you're on about saying we are sinners who need forgiveness and the only way for that is to trust Jesus' death, you get pushback. And it is interesting, they didn't crucify Jesus because he healed people. So as a church, as a community, if you're a follower of Jesus, you need to understand that very clearly and see things the way that he did. Can you pray with me? Our Father, we thank you for the promise of forgiveness, full and free, for the fresh start before you. And we ask, please, uh, that we'd care for people and their physical needs as well, but that compassion might lead us to see the eternal significance of the need for forgiveness. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.